Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. We've been looking at the nature and character of God for the last few weeks. The holiness of God, the glory of God, the steadfast love or loving kindness of God. I want to continue that today. Getting it right. You haven't got it right, says the exasperated piano teacher. Junior is holding his hands the way he's been told. His fingering is unexceptionable. He's memorized the piece perfectly. He has hit all the right notes with deadly accuracy. But his heart's not in it, only his fingers. He has succeeded in boring everybody to death, including himself. That's how Frederick Beekner illustrates righteousness. Doing the right things in the right way, but above all, in the right spirit. Buchner concludes, righteousness is getting it all right. If you play it the way it's supposed to be played, there should not be a still foot in the house. Now, righteousness is another one of those mm, slippery words we use, but never really define. We just assume, well, everybody knows what that means. No. My unabridged dictionary tells me that righteousness is the quality or condition of being righteous. So that means I have to look up righteous which means upright or morally right. Okay, righteousness means being righteous, and righteous means being right. I'm not sure that's very helpful. I know lots of folks who think they're always right, but I don't, they don't seem all that righteous to me, just saying. The original Middle English word Richtwis, richtwis, originally meant going in a straight line. The German root richt, that's related to it, also meant to be straight, whether that's straight out or straight up. The word, for example, richtlinie, that they still use today, is a plumb line to make sure it's upright. And straight. So to be righteous means to go in a straight line, not swerving from the course. Now, in the Old Testament, the word for righteous and righteousness is well, let me explain something here. You didn't think this would be easy, did you? Now, most Hebrew core words have three consonants, three consonants, 
and they were written without vowels. And the letters gave you a hint of what the word was, and by virtue of speaking the language, you just had to know which vowels belonged where. Now, the word for righteousness, the root for righteousness, was for those who were writing down, and I'll transliterate for you, is S-D-Q. S-D-Q. The S, by the way, is pronounced like a T-S, like in tsetse fly. So it's a, that kind of sharp or hard S. And the root, the root S-D-Q, appears more than 500 times in the Old Testament. Obviously, it's an important word. But it appears in four distinct forms with different vowels. There are the adjectives righteous, to be righteous, tzaddik, tzaddak, and tzedek. And then there's the participial noun from tzedek, which is tzedakah. They all get translated righteous, 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 and righteousness. And to be honest, no, I have no idea how they could tell them apart. I'm not even sure if it mattered. I don't know. Now, all of them can either refer to people, people being righteous, or to God. The versions with the E at the beginning, tzedek and tzedakah, are used more often for God, especially in the books of Psalms and Isaiah. The root SDQ originally had to do with victory and justice, victory and justice. It goes back to the days when people who had been slighted or that they'd been accused of a crime would then fight it out in expectation that the just cause would win. God would help the innocent person, or as the case may be, help the person prosecuting against the, uh, the criminal. And your victory proved your innocence and gave you the justice you deserved. Now, when folks started settling their differences in a court of law instead of a back alley, it meant to be acquitted or exonerated. You had proved your cause was right and just and had been vindicated. So, to be righteous meant that you had been cleared of all charges, guiltless, no grounds for accusation. You triumphed in your integrity. Summary, righteousness means going straight without swerving from the course, being beyond or above accusation or reproach, and to be vindicated in your integrity, to win for a just cause. Beekner's got a point, though. We've all known people who got upright confused with uptight, and got their nose stuck in the up position. You know? 
They were so, let me, pardon me when I, they were so righteous that they were wrongous. <laughs> it's not just what you do, but how you do it. Not just the fingering, it's the heart and the soul and the spirit of it. Your actions can be good, but your attitude can stink. If you get proud of being right, you're wrong. If you feel you have to be right at all costs, you're probably wrong. Real righteousness requires a little honesty and some serious humility. It also involves why you do what you do, you know, where you don't just go through the motions, but you understand the spirit of it so you can put not just your fingers, but your whole heart into it as well. It means getting it right. If we're honest, of course, speaking of being honest, the whole idea of a righteous person is something of a contradiction of terms. I'd say it's an oxymoron, but then someone would say the preacher called us all morons. So, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say that. But while the Bible does talk about righteous people, it's operating something on a sliding scale there. Relatively speaking, some people can be righteous, that is, compared to other people. But when the psalmist looks at human beings, that means you and me, according to God's absolute standard, where God becomes the measuring stick, he has to admit, Psalm 14, no one is righteous, no not one. You want to say that with me? No, not one. Because no human being tracks consistently on the right course. We just don't. Even if we make all the right choices and do the right things, our motives are always a little mixed, and we'll do at least some of it for very wrong reasons. That's just how we are. It's just who we are. In the same way, it is practically impossible to proofread your own writing. Have you noticed that? I'm terrible at proofreading my sermons. I do it a lot. But when I look at a sentence that I wrote, instead of seeing what I actually wrote, I tend to see there what I intended to write you know what I'm talking about? I don't see that I typed to instead of the. And you know, my spell check can't tell the difference either. You know why? It was made by humans. Mm. In the same way, it's impossible to recognize your own flaws because we look at ourselves and instead of seeing what we're doing or saying, we see or hear in our, you know, in our inner mind's ear there what we intended to do or say or what we thought we were doing or saying, what we had planned to do or say. But that doesn't mean that's the way it came out. So the psalmist, he laments frankly in Psalm 19, 
Who can discern his own errors? And he has to pray, Lord, clear me of hidden faults. The ones we don't see or recognize. And Isaiah, he has to confess concerning people, it's us, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are filthy rags. It's in Isaiah 64. But then of God, he says this, he prophetically declares in the name of the Lord, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one besides me. That is, there is no one truly righteous except God. So alongside holiness and glory and steadfast love, righteousness is one of the distinctive characteristics of God. You do not find any other God in object of worship in the Middle East that is holy, considered, called holy, or that has glory, or that has steadfast love, and especially not righteous. Turn with me to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his adversaries on every side. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples behold his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame those who make their boast in idols. All gods bow before him. Zion hears and is glad, and the towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O God. For you, O Lord, are most high above all the earth. You were exalted far above all gods. The Lord loves those who hate evil. He guards the lives of his faithful. He rescues them from the hand of the wicked. Light dawns for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Here is the God we know from Sinai, from the tabernacle, from the temple dedication. The holy God different and qualitatively different, distant from this world, who's other and transcendent, who breaks into human consciousness in his glory, surrounded with impenetrable darkness and cloud with exploding lightning and fire as the earth trembles and mountains melt. Now, at this point, we expect to hear of the majesty of his holiness and the praise of his glory. 
We expect to hear angels crying, holy, holy, holy. However, while we do read that the peoples will behold his glory and are encouraged to give thanks to his holy name, the actual theme of this psalm is the revelation of God's righteousness, his tzedakah, the God who is transcendent in holiness motivated by steadfast love, becomes imminent in glory. But what he is revealing about himself is his righteousness, that is, his justice and his judgments. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The heavens declare his righteousness. In his holiness, God is different from the world, and one distinctive difference is that he, and he alone, is truly just and righteous. Whether it was the gods of Canaan, or Assyria, or Babylonia, or Egypt, Greece, or Phoenicia, no other, no other ancient faith expected their gods to be righteous. What we take for granted because of our heritage of faith that we have received and in which many of us have grown up in, they didn't understand at all. They didn't grasp it. They'd never seen it. It didn't occur to them. And it won't occur to the world. It just won't. The gods of Canaan, Babylon, they were mighty. They were cunning. They might also be at times understanding and somewhat compassionate, but not righteous. Life wasn't fair, so they figured the gods must not be fair either. Conceded, the gods had to get their way by being bigger or stronger or more seductive or cleverer than everyone else. Might made right. It was about power. Lustful, they were sexually profligate, adulterous, and even incestuous. There were, by the way, I've got to throw this in, at one point in, in Egypt, the Egyptian gods all married their brothers and sisters. And so as a result, there was one time, at one time at the beginning of the Hellenistic age where we know that there was one city in Egypt, one city in Egypt where at least 65% of the men had married their sisters because that's what the gods had done. I love my sister, but not like that. <laughs> yes, hallelujah. Uh, do I hear a hallelujah? 
The gods were corrupt. They could be bought off with a generous sacrifice. They were fickle. They could change their minds on a whim. They had to be reminded of their divine duties and obligations. And of course, if, no matter how generous your sacrifice was to win the God's favor, if somebody else came along and gave them a bigger sacrifice, guess who they would side with? Mm -mm. And the people just took that for granted. That's the way it should be. The gods were, in short, just like immature, self-centered people, only bigger. The gods of the world religions outside of our Judeo-Christian heritage, they aren't righteous either. Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, other religions rooted in the cycles of nature or the cycles of time, all assume that there's sort of, you know, that yin-yang balance to the universe. There's light and darkness, right and wrong, good and bad. They're all merely the flip sides of one reality. There is no ultimate justice or righteousness in any of those religions. There's only karma, which is the pendulum swing of life where good and bad of life eventually, if over many eons, balance each other out. There's no justice, no real proactive righteousness here. And forget New Age. Completely self-obsessed, pandering to one's own wants, whims, personal advantage. Justice, just is whatever furthers my wants. It's the job of the spirit, spirit and geophysical forces in the world to do what I wish so I can cope successfully with life. No righteousness here either. That is, whenever human beings create an image of God, whenever human beings make up their own religion, it comes out looking like another version of ourselves. It's inevitable. Our gods indulge the same whims and appetites we do, or they become impersonal forces in a careless world, and certainly would never condemn us for anything we would do or want to do. So in a world that basically is filled with bickering children, the God of Israel is the only adult in the room. The only one who has the wisdom and the maturity to render just judgments. And when the psalmist sings, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, it means that his authority and his sovereignty are grounded in his own intrinsic integrity and perfect fairness. There is no impersonal yin-yang balance in the universe because God is not impersonal. His nature is one of steadfast love and righteousness. 
There's no good and bad, right and wrong within God. His entire nature is one of purposeful righteousness. God does not turn this way and that according to any divine or human whims. God cannot be bought off. He cannot be manipulated or swayed to do what is expedient or profitable but wrong. You cannot bargain with God. I don't know if you've ever done that. No, don't put your hands up. I can't unsee that, okay? But you cannot bargain with God, you know, offering those worthless little baubles of token obedience to induce God to compromise his moral integrity and his perfect plan for your personal benefit. He's not going to do it, nor should he. And if he were, he wouldn't be a God worth following and worshiping. It would simply be another one of those gods of our own imaginings. The real God, the living God, is righteous. He goes straight without veering to the right or to the left. He is upright, not leaning one way or another. And just as a word of warning, you cannot coerce him with a carefully selected arsenal of precious promises and a ramped-up emotional intensity that you and I presume to call faith. You know what I'm talking about? You know that feeling you get inside when you're desperately trying to make God answer your prayer like you want, and you're quoting Scripture till you're blue in the face, and as if he'd never heard it before. Now, even Christians will disregard God's fundamental righteousness in our quest to get what we want from him. God's very nature, his very nature defines what is right and just. Accuse him as you will, God will be vindicated. It's not about stiffly following rules. It's the whole spirit of the thing, and imagine that with a capital S, the whole spirit of the thing. God gets it. Because righteousness is uniquely part of God's character and his nature. He doesn't just go through the motions. He puts his heart and soul, the whole very being of God into it. He plays it with purpose. He plays it with rhythm. He plays it with soul. God gets it right. He's the only one who gets it right. Closing, the psalmist rejoices that light dawns for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. But considering what we've said, how can that be? 
I mean, none of us are righteous. Not really. And if God is genuinely just, how could any of us measure up to his standard? If, if God alone is righteous, never swerving from the right direction, then every one of us should stand hopelessly condemned before the divine tribunal. Light dawning for the righteous, joy for the upright in heart. How on earth? Or maybe it wasn't earthly. Perhaps the psalmist gazed into the distant future how God had planned to reconcile his righteousness and his steadfast love. Please turn to Paul's epistle to the Romans. We'll read two verses from chapter 1, and then we'll leap to chapter 3. For those taking notes on this, that's going to be Romans 1, 16 through 17, and Romans 3, 21 through 26. If you wonder why I'm waiting, I can hear the pages turning up here, so I'll wait till everyone pretty well gets there. That's okay. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. But now, in chapter 3, 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness. You would expect to hear mercy. But he says, no, he did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed, it was to prove or to demonstrate at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God, it's the unifying theme that runs throughout Paul's letter to Rome. God revealed his righteousness, that is, he demonstrated and evidenced his unswerving rightness through Jesus Christ. It's righteousness, God's personal integrity and principles, that's inseparable from his justice. Justice is simply active righteousness. 
Justice requires that crime has its punishment, that human choices in this life matter, and that there will be consequences, and that the consequences should and will correspond to the gravity of the offense. Our offenses against God, offenses against God, offenses against other humans, our offenses against the earth and His creatures are far beyond our own awareness. God is infinitely righteous, infinitely righteous. So your sin is infinitely serious. Just as the bar of God's righteousness is infinite in scope, the depth of our offense is infinite as well. The psalmist was absolutely correct that we're not able to discern our errors, that we are rife with hidden faults, the ones that we know, the ones that we rationalize or excuse are simply the tip of the iceberg. Add to, add to that our, our corporate social sins. You know, the systemic sins embedded in our culture and in our politics that we're also a part of, all have sinned, measured by the absolute bar of justice, and we are all doomed. But God reveals his righteousness in the coming of Jesus Christ. It is in his wisdom, God sends someone who recognizes and fully lives according to the standard of God's own righteous character, who is guiltless before him, deserves no punishment. That is one who, that has to be one who shares the unique and very nature of God in his righteousness. And yet, who willingly accepts the guilt of others and exhausts the requirements of our just punishment in his own person. Justice must be done. Righteousness requires also that justice must be done. God cannot, will not simply ignore or excuse human injustice and wrong because that would be unjust. God can and will not minimize human injustice and wrong. The unimaginable suffering of the cross, what Jesus went through, reveals the unfathomable cost of our offense. But when Christ took your sin upon himself to death on the cross, the requirements of God's righteous justice were satisfied, and the punishment was exhausted. When God the Father then raised Jesus from the dead, he was triumphant, and Christ's victory won your acquittal. If you and I, no wonder light, dawns for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Now it's possible. Now it's fulfilled. Yes, I'll take that as an amen.
If you and I are going to be righteous, it has to be given to us as a gift. It has to be imputed to us by the righteous judge. It has to be made possible for us by the self-giving of God's righteous Son on our behalf. It has to be imparted to us, that is, planted in our hearts by the very Spirit of God who is in himself righteous. God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, is righteous. And you can only yield yourself to him and let him express his own nature and character of righteousness within and through you. Remember, it is still always God's righteousness, never yours. It's never yours. It's his in and working through you. You are simply his vehicle. You can't get proud about that kind of righteousness because it is all God's. You can only receive it and live it out with his help in humility and in gratitude. You play it not just with your fingers, but play it with your heart. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are righteous, and we come before you needy and guilty and fraught with our own self-centeredness, our own pettiness. Have mercy upon us, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who took our sin upon himself that we might receive the righteousness of God. Count your righteousness toward us as we put your trust, put our trust in Jesus and what he did for us. As we rely upon you, Heavenly Father, to do for us what we can never, ever, ever do for ourselves. And then, Lord, help us to live in ways that bring honor to you and reflect on your righteousness, not to win your affection or your approval, but simply as a, as a thanksgiving to you and an act of gratitude and a witness to the whole world of what our God is really like. For we ask this in the name of our perfect sacrifice, our atonement for sin, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.